Okay, are we in for a doozy of an episode tonight? You know, I've, I've, I've had this thing on the back burner that I've been uh, working on for a while. Some stuff I've been taking notes on for a while. And it finally got to a point where I'm like, I got to do it. I got to do it. So I'm going to do it this week. And it would have been a great week to kind of skimp on all my media sections. But I have particularly a chubby media section today as well. So we're in for for a, a dense episode. I'm going to try to move through it a little quicker than maybe uh, I normally would. Try to a little less detours. Uh, I'm calling this one Missing Logic and Missing 411 because that's what we're going to talk about later. This book, a series of books called Missing 411. The reason I'm telling you that right now is because this is episode 42, and if I had planned this better, I would have done this in episode 41. Oh, well, you can't, you can't uh, make magic happen all the time. Coincidences, uh, they don't always happen. And we're going to talk about coincidences later. Before we get into anything else, I want to throw something at the top here. Uh, normally what I do during the week, one of the things that I almost always cover during the week is an album that I've been listening to. I don't have an album this week. And normally I would tell you this after I do, you know, all the, the, uh, health and personal stuff about myself, but I'm telling you at the beginning, because I want everybody to hear this one. I did something different this week. Instead of doing the album thing, I did something for patrons. Uh, my supporters over on Patreon, I wanted to do something special for them. So I took this opportunity. This week, normally I do a behind the scenes type of audio. Just kind of try to be vulnerable about what's going on behind the process. Um, show my confidences and my weaknesses. Well, this week instead, what I did is I put together a song list and I acted like a DJ. And I don't mean uh, spinning in a club or scratching at a street party. I mean like a college radio DJ. Here's a song. Let me talk about it afterwards. Let me play another song. Let me talk about that for a little bit afterwards. And I did that. It's a 13 song list. It's about an hour and a half. I'm calling it. Uh, I'm planning on doing it again because it was a lot of fun. Something I've always wanted to do. I'm calling it College Dropout Radio. So if you're already a patron, make sure you go over to Patreon and check out College Dropout Radios, which will be in your RSS feed. It's also in the posts. If you are not a patron, that would be a good time to just kind of dip in and give it a shot. See what it's like. Everybody from the $4 and up range will have access to the audios, audio files. And you'll have access to check out College Dropout Radio. So you want to try it for a month? Four bucks for one month. Try it for a month. See, see if you like it. I might do College Dropout Radio monthly. That might be something I continue to do because I really enjoy doing it. Uh, it's a lot of work, so I can't do it weekly because of all the work I put into this show. I don't want this show to suffer for something I'm doing that's extra. That's a big mistake I, I think a lot of people make. All right, so that's where I'm starting. College Dropout Radio, go check it out. Patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall, $4 level and up is available. Uh, well, if you just want to support the show for a dollar a month, you can do that. You just won't have access to the audio. Okay. Uh, what else happened this week? Well, uh, what is today? Today is the 31st. I'm recording this on the 31st. So uh, three days ago, 
I turned 44. Yeah. I, I got some, speaking of symmetry, four and four. I'm 44 now. Uh, feels the same as 40, 43. Uh, to be honest, uh, I'm sure you all know this. I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know. COVID birthdays kind of suck because there's not really much, unless you live with a bunch of people in your house, there's not really a lot to do for your birthday. It's just my birthday, same day as every other day. <laughs> I'm glad to be alive. I'm glad to be healthy. I'm grateful for those. But uh, I guess I'll just do the same shit that I've been doing for the past two years. Uh, I could have recorded a podcast, I guess, on my birthday, but I chose not to do that. So yeah, 44 years old, feels good. Uh, people, I don't know if this is common of anybody other than my generation, which is Generation X, but I know a lot of people my age and a little bit older always say, never thought I would make it this far. That's a, I wonder if my, my generation, it's just that, uh, was that pessimistic as teenagers, but we never thought we would make it this far. I like it. I like getting older. I'm less of a dumbass. Still a dumbass. It's just less of one. Hmm. You know, though, one thing that happened, uh, it was a little depressing. This is going to sound so petty, but hey, let's talk about something petty. Uh, so I got some birthday gifts, great birthday gifts. Uh, you know, um, one of my favorite things actually I got was socks. That might sound crazy, but I walk twice a day. You know, I walk for about two hours every day between my first walk and my second walk and socks, uh, they wear out. <laughs> so getting some nice socks, uh, I love that. It's something I'm going to use and it's something that, uh, you know, when people, when somebody else buys you socks, you know what they're saying to you? They're saying, you don't have to buy this boring thing for yourself. And that's nice. You could take your money and spend it on something else instead of socks. Uh, but one of the other things I got for my birthday was money. Um, and I hadn't had the money in front of me, you know, a couple money from like two or three people, family members. Hey, here's how much money I have. And, uh, I said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use this and I'll go and I'll, I'll buy my splurge. You know, it's my birthday money. This isn't uh, money that I made. This is birthday money. This is gift money. I'm going to take it and I'm going to splurge on myself. I'm going to take it. And I'm going to buy something that something I just, something I want. And then I sat and I'm like, okay, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? It's three days now. And I still haven't thought of anything. There's nothing that I really want. At least that can be purchased. There's nothing I really want that could be purchased. That's a little depressing. So what I'm going to do with my money is I'm going to be the responsible 44 year old person and I'm going to take it and I'm just going to put it into my debt. In particular, I'm going to put it into my credit card debt because here's something interesting. I don't know if anybody's ever pointed this out to you, but here's kind of a cool thing about paying off credit card debt. You actually don't lose any money. That might sound crazy, but think about this. Say you owe, I don't know, $500 on a credit card, right? And you have $100 sitting in your bank. So you have $100 that you could take and spend on something else. And you go, you know what? I'm going to put it into my credit card. Well, you put it into your credit card. What happens? 
you get a hundred dollars of credit back. So you've, you've, you've paid a bill yet. You still have access to that hundred dollars. Now, granted, it's not your money anymore. That's a hundred dollars that you're going to borrow again, but it's, it's a perfect situation. Like if you have debt on credit cards to put your money into the credit cards, because then if an emergency situation or something comes up or you just want to splurge on something, all that money you put in the credit card, you just use it again. You don't have to sit on money and like wait to spend it on something. You can just put it into a credit card. And then later, if you want to use it for something else, use it for something else. It actually doesn't go anywhere. It's a weird, there's a weird kind of logic, but it's kind of true. You have to think about it like this. Uh, I told you I spent $130 on the dog, right? And I was worried about, I got to have enough for this. Let's say I didn't have the $130. And then I have my birthday came up, right? And we'll say I got $150. And I put that $150 into my credit card. And then a week later, something happens to the dog again. And it's going to be $130 again. Oh man, I should have saved that $150. Oh, wait a minute. I can just use the credit card and respend that 130 of that 150. It's a weird kind of logic, but it's a good logic. It's good logic to have. I never realized that when I was younger. I always felt like, oh man, that money. I wanted to do something with that. You can't. Okay. I said no detours. I lied. <laughs> Let's talk a, a second about something I did for one day this week. One of the things I thought maybe I would spend some money on was, hey, you know what? I love Script. That's the ebook slash audiobook service that I pay for. It's nine dollars a month. It's like the Netflix of Netflix of books. Um, it's like Netflix in the same way that you know stuff comes and goes out of it. Uh, but because of that, because stuff comes and goes, not everything is accessible. You're like, I want to read. Um, Breath by James Nestor, which I'm about to talk to talk about in a minute. Mm, dang, it's not there. They don't have it available. You know, months and months later, it might be in there, but it's not available now. And I want to read it now. Well, that sucks, right? So the only other option is to go buy it. But there's also the option of, I thought, you know what? What if I had Scribd and I paid for Audible? Then if it's not in the script, maybe it'll be available in Audible. Like I'm raising my abilities. So I'm paying $10 for this one, $15 a month for this. I go through a lot of books. That's going to save me a lot of money instead of having to buy all of them. So I signed up for Audible. They have two tiers. There's the $8 tier, which nobody should pay for. We'll go into that a little bit later. And then the $16 tier, which, you know, the sneakily, they call it $15.99. Yeah, it's $16. Nobody... Nobody's fooled by that penny. Here's the thing though. Um, what you get with Audible, the, I think they call it Audible Pro, whatever the, the more expensive one is, the $16 one. You get access to all of the stuff like Scribd, you know, like the free audio stuff, the stuff that's included with your membership. And then you also get a credit every month and that credit you can spend on buying an audiobook. So something that's not available for free, you just go buy it. You know, like for example, I used my one credit. I have the ebook version of Dune, but I don't have the audiobook version. And uh, if I've read a book before, it's great to have the audiobook for it because then I can just listen to it again while I'm walking or something. So I used my credit and I got I got Dune. 
Um, anyways, here's the thing. Sounds like a great plan. It's not a great plan. You know why it's not a great plan? Is because Audible is a ripoff. Audible is a complete ripoff. It's a ripoff because number one, uh, it's $16. Scribd is $10. Scribd, you also get unlimited ebooks. That doesn't mean they have everything in ebook, but you get, um, I'd say about half the books I've ever wanted to find are available in ebooks on Scribd included in my $10 a month. So it's, it's, it's $6 less and I get audiobooks and I get the ebooks. In addition, you get magazines. In addition, you also get, uh, I mean, you can listen to podcasts in it, but I would recommend it. It's, it's not the greatest experience. You also get the free membership to movie that I told you guys about before the independent and foreign film streaming service. That's $10 in and of itself. So $10 script is a great way to spend money. Um, but Audible is not because number one, you're only literally only getting those audio podcasts. I mean, audio blog, geez, every word, but the one I want audio books that they choose to include and their selection sucks royally. I had a list of 300 books. Uh, it's a mix between books that I have on my shelf that I would like to just, you know, if it's a fiction book, I would like to just get the audio book so I could read it while I go on my walks every day or books that I actually want to read, um, that I don't own. So I had this list of like 300 books and I started going through and going, okay, how many of these can I just put on the list of stuff that I can listen to on audible? You know, how many I found that were available with my audible membership Three. I just blew out the microphone. Let me do that again. Three, just three. Awful, awful. Uh, so it sucks. So that if you were to get the $8 membership, all you get is that you don't get the credit every month. So all you get for $8 is a really crappy audiobook selection. If you pay $16. You get the crappy audiobook selection and then you get a credit. So there might be people think, well, it might be worth it, you know, 16 bucks just for audiobook. All the other stuff is extra, which is what they're banking on. But let me tell you something. You can get audiobooks cheaper than that. You can get audiobooks cheaper than that from Audible if you're patient. So remember I told you my trick before about looking at daily deals every day. Audible has, I mean, uh, Kindle has daily deals every day where you can get books full price books for only a dollar or as much as $5. So if you have a book you want to read, you know, what you do is you create a big list of books you want to read, right? And you just keep going into that daily deals every day and you look for those books. And when they pop up, you get it. We'll say, what's, what, we'll pick the median here. We'll say you get the book you want for three bucks, right? Now you own the ebook still doesn't help you. You want an audio book, right? Well, if you own the ebook, about 80% of the ebooks on Kindle, you will get an audible audio companion, which is the exact same thing. It is the exact same audiobook, except you don't have to pay full price. The audible audio companions, the most I've ever seen them was $7.49. So do the math there. If you wait, you get the ebook, and then you have the Kindle, you have the Kindle ebook. And you get the Audible add-on. 
So you got three dollars and then seven forty nine. You just got an ebook and the audiobook of the same book for ten dollars and forty nine, you know, plus tax or whatever, not sixteen dollars. So Audible is a ripoff. Kindle Unlimited is pretty cool. I like that. I'll be fair. But what they're doing with Audible is just stupid. And by the way, I think it's weird that uh, Script is the biggest competitor to Audible um, and Kindle Unlimited, actually both. If you wanted the same thing you get from Script from Amazon, you'd have to pay the $16 and then pay the $10 for the other ones. Actually, the other one's $15 too. So it's like $30 a month. And what you get from Scribd is $10. They should really be a sponsor of this podcast because I love them. I just wish their um, the app didn't crash the audiobooks at least once a day. But not that big of a deal. Uh, yeah, so what I'm saying about that is weird is that Scribd is a competitor to Amazon. Scribd is like a tiny company compared to Amazon. Why isn't Apple in this game? Why isn't Google in this game? Why don't they have streaming audiobook services. It's a little bit weird. You know, even, even just the eBooks, why don't they have a competitor to Kindle Unlimited? A little weird. Not sure what's going on there. Maybe they just don't think they make any money at it. Maybe they think Audible and Amazon have already won. From looking at the, what, what they're offering, what Amazon offers with Audible, they think they've won too. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I meant, I said that I was going to talk about breathe for a minute. This is a, a, one of my favorite books that I read last year. It's called breathe the new science of a lost art by James Nestor. It's a book about breathing. I've, I've talked about it. I think on this podcast, <laughs> it's been so long. It might've actually been my short lived, um, book focused podcast, semi-literate, but, um, there's this other service that I use. It's called Readwise. Readwise it collects all of my Kindle highlights, and one of the one of the features of it is you can have a highlight. Um, you can get this in in email or a highlight feed within the Readwise app. I prefer to get it within the app. I don't like my email cluttered. Um, and what you do is you go in every day, whether it's the email or the feed in the app, and there's this you you set a threshold whether it is uh, three books or, or three quotes or 10 quotes or more, you know, whatever you want. And it will pull that many quotes from your Kindle highlights, all of your Kindle highlights. And it's not going to pull them all from the same book. It's going to pull, pull from all different books. And the purpose is to just resurface these things for you. So, oh, that's right. I remember reading that. Remind you of ideas. It's a great service. Um, Readwise is another, um, app that I, I love service. It's actually a service and an app that I love that, um, I would love if they wanted to sponsor the podcast. I would love taking them on too, because I use the shit out of their service. Uh, but today Readwise popped up highlight for me from breathe by James Nesser. And I wanted to share it with you because it relates to something that we've been talking about a lot recently, which is sleep. And one of the things I mentioned, uh, when I was talking about interrupted sleep is every time waking up and having to pee. And some of that having to do with drinking too close to the time of going to bed. But there's also a physiological reason for that that has to do with sleep disruption. And I'm going to read this quote to you about that. 
During the deepest, most restful stages of sleep, the pituitary gland, a pea-sized ball at the base of the brain, secretes hormones that control the release of adrenaline, endorphins, growth hormone, and other substances, including vasopressin, which communicates with cells to store more water. This is how animals can sleep through the night without feeling thirsty or needing to relieve themselves. But if the body has inadequate time in deep sleep, as it does when it experiences chronic sleep apnea, vasopressin won't be secreted normally. The kidneys will release water, which triggers the need to urinate and signals to our brains that we should consume more liquid. We get thirsty and we need to pee more. So, physiological reason. When your sleep is disrupting, you're disrupted, you're disrupting your pituitary gland, which is messing with the release of vasopressin, which means that your cells aren't retaining water at night as they should. So it's, you're peeing yourself. Well, you know, like we're 80% water. So you can, you can be a lot without having drank anything um, if you're not getting vasopressin. So just wanted to share that with you. Thought that was prescient. Prescient? Is it prescient or prescient? Don't know. Uh, one more thing about health and sleep. Uh, I talked in the last episode, episode 41, come for the sexy, sexy, stay for the art. Talked about how I was going to start taking uh, over a thousand milligrams of EPA and that I was choosing to use Carlson Maximum Omega 2000 fish oil, um, which actually gives me over 1200 EPA and I think it's 500 THA. And, uh, I started taking it and I wanted to tell you a little bit about the results cause I get results pretty much the first night that I did it, uh, in episode 40 dinosaur note taking an extremely popular episode. We talked about the differences between shallow dreaming and deep dreaming and the significance that I saw in that, uh, you know, I went, when I had the sleep disruption. I went a basically a year without remembering any dreams because my dreaming was so shallow that whole time that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going into the stage of sleep that would make me have vivid enough dreams to remember them. And now that I started taking this EPA, what I've noticed is my dreams are getting intense. And I don't mean like nightmare intense. I mean, they're vivid and highly symbolic. So going back to the shallow versus deep dreams, shallow dreams for me, the way that I use that term, it means dreams that are transparent in their meaning. You read a book about fishing, you go to sleep, you dream about fishing. That's a shallow dream because your brain is literally just taking information and going, okay, let's move this into storage. And that's what your dream is, right? That's a shallow dream, but the deeper dreams, these are the dreams where you're getting into your subconscious and things don't necessarily make sense. They're weird. They're dream logic. So when you start to have deeper dreams like that, it means you're getting deeper sleep because you can't have those deep dreams in shallow sleep. Uh, what's great about that is my sleep is improving, not just, uh, time-wise, but quality is improving and that EPA seems to be helping. So if you're trying to improve the quality of your sleep, that might be a good place to start. It's not expensive. 
think it was like, I want to say it was like 15 bucks for the fish oil. It's cheap, you know, it's not an expensive product. So it's a good place to start to just hedge a little bit away at that stuff. Now there, there are a lot of physical mechanisms that deep sleep is important for a lot of, uh, a lot of cleaning that goes on in your brain from what I understand. And we also talked a little bit about that vasopressin, but remember what it said in the pituitary gland there, the pituitary gland releases hormones and endorphins. Well, one of the hormones it releases or controls the release of is cortisol. So if you're not going into that deep sleep and your pituitary gland isn't getting the function that it needs, you might be, as I was, secreting too much cortisol, hence uh, rapid heartbeats, also known as tachycardia. Or, uh, ectopic, I forgot the word, sorry, ectopic beats, which is when they, the heartbeat gets the sensation that it's skipping. We're just plain old anxiety. And, uh, that can just come from that not proper functioning of the pituitary gland. But what I'm curious about, I understand the physical mechanisms and how deep sleep affects that. What I'm curious about is the psychological ones. You know, if, if dreams, as we've been taught, as I just said, the symbolism in them is in some way our subconscious working something out. What happens to our subconscious and therefore our whole psyche when it doesn't have enough time, when it doesn't get to work those things out? There's no, I don't know if. If there are books written about this, I'm sure there are. Anybody out there knows what they are, let me know, because I would like to read about that and bring some of that information back into the show. Uh, or, you know, if you're a sleep doctor or something, um, a psychologist who knows a lot about sleep and the connections, any of those things, hit me up. Uh, I guess I'll throw out the number here. I do it at the end of the show too, but, uh, what the heck is it? Yeah, if you, if you if you have a recommendation for one of those things, you can go to the contact page on the website. It matters, but it doesn't.com forward slash contact, or you can call a voicemail, leave it, leave a message on the answering machine, one six six nine two four five six zero nine eight. That would be awesome because I'd like to know uh, if there is some correlation there. I imagine there has to be. All right, let's get into the media section. I told you I've got some. Some stuff going on in here too today. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention my throat got super dry last week. By the time we got to the end of the episode and sore. So I am, uh, I switched up my tea this week and I am drinking some throat coat tea. This is supposed to be stuff that's good for keeping your vocal cords and your throat moist, which is a word a lot of people don't like to hear. I don't know. I don't get it, but whatever. So I read a book this week. That's the book I told you I was going to read last week. I told you that there was a book about Roger Rabbit. It's not called Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's the name of the movie. It's called Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf. And wow, what a book. Um, you know, it's easy to compare a book and then a film adaptation. I do it. You know, when I talked about I Am Legend, I talked about how I didn't want to watch the movie because from the preview, it looked like it wasn't going to do the book justice. Um, I talked about Jurassic Park. I talked about the differences between those two. 
talked about the TV adaptation, the first episode of the TV adaptation of um, Brave New World. I wanted to say brand new world there. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not above making those comparisons. It's, I don't think it's a bad thing to do it. But you would be hard-pressed to make comparisons between this book and the movie. Because in reality, they have almost nothing in common. Uh, it's almost like they're alternative realities. It's not even like an adaptation of the same story. It's a completely different story, completely different plot. The things that you have in common between the two is you have Eddie Valiant, you have Roger Rabbit, you have Jessica Rabbit, you have Baby Herman. And I think that's it. No Judge Doom, no Weasels. Um, yeah, there's, there's not even a Toontown. Toontown doesn't exist in the book. The Toons live in the city with the people you know a neighborhood gets yeah he's he's making some uh sly references to kind of uh racist terminology he's not i'm not saying he's being racist i'm saying he's using the trope of i don't want to call it the trope this is complicated when white people were super racist as a whole and black people or Mexican people or Asian people would move in the neighborhood. They would say, you know, they were whatever, ruining the neighborhood or whatever the hell they would say. That's kind of the way that they talk about tunes in this book, that the people, not necessarily the, the author, but you know, like, oh, uh, the neighborhood's getting a little toony. So he's kind of playing with that a little bit, which I appreciated because he's, uh, he's not making fun of that. He's giving a nod to it in the sense of like acknowledging it. That's uh, one thing that's sim that's not similar. <laughs> like I said, uh, okay, in the movie, here, let's try this. Roger Rabbit, if you don't count his ears, he's maybe three feet tall, right? Maybe four with the ears standing up. In the book, he's six feet tall. And I don't think that's his ears. I think that's the top of his head. Guess what? He's also brown. So in other words, he looks like a rabbit. More like a rabbit, at least. That's a big difference. Uh, but I think the biggest difference is this is not about cartoons. If you remember the movie, the movie is about cartoons. Roger Rabbit is a cartoon star. He's a sidekick to Baby Herman. And in movies, cartoon movies, right? They're movie stars. This is not about that. This is about comic strips. So he is still a sidekick to Baby Herman, but in a comic strip. And because they're comic strip characters and not moving cartoon characters, uh, when they talk in real life, I mean, they obviously they move in real life. When they talk, they have speech bubbles, like physical speech bubbles above their heads. And I can't, from what I could tell, the humanoid... So you have, you have two kinds of tunes, uh, for the most part, humanoids and barnyards. Humanoids are the ones that look like humans and barnyards are the ones that look like animals. I'm sure there's other classifications, but those are the two you hear about in the book. Uh, from what I could tell, some of the humanoid tunes have the ability to either speech bubble or to actually talk with their mouth, make sound. What I don't know. What isn't super clear is 
it seems like, and I'm pretty sure this is accurate, that when tunes speak in speech bubbles, no sound comes out. So you actually have to read their speech bubbles and talk back and forth with them. And there's a lot, there's a lot of funny stuff about the physical reality of speech bubbles in this, but, and not even speech bubbles, like a uh, smoke that comes out of the ears when they drink alcohol or uh, like one part, uh, Roger leaves really fast. And he leaves those like zoom lines that they use in cartoons to show that somebody's moving fast, but they're physical. So Valiant has to like pick them up and throw them in the closet because he's left them behind. It's, it's pretty inventive what he does here. Uh, that's why I would say it's like an alternate reality. I wouldn't compare the book and the movie because the movie's brilliant, but I think what's happening here is really brilliant as well. And because it's comic strips, what's really interesting is comic strips aren't drawings in this world. There's no artist sitting there drawing Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit is real, right? So what you see as comic strips are actually photo shoots. That's actually my favorite detail of this. And it, it plays in huge because the plot of the story is Roger Rabbit goes to Eddie Valiant and hires him because he wants to find out why the DeGreasy brothers, which is like this uh, syndicate that owns, you know, that they're like a studio. Basically, they use the word syndicate here. They own his contract and they want to find out why they won't let him star in his own strip. Why they keep making him second fiddle to baby Herman. Why he can't, because he keeps, people keep promising him. And then there's this, this promise from somebody else, this mysterious someone else that says that they want to buy Roger's contract and they want to make him a star. And uh, Rocco de Greasy won't sell Roger's contract and he can't figure out why. Why is he, why is he not letting him go? Especially if he doesn't want to make him a star in his own. So that's why he goes to Eddie Valiant. And that's where the plot of the story kind of goes. And I will tell you, if you like the movie and in the movie, like me, um, you love Jessica Rabbit because, uh, she has red hair and she's, she's not bad. She's drawn that way, which by the way, is actually a line from the book. Uh, and she has Kathleen Turner's husky voice and you like her and she loves Roger. You might not like her in the book. She's kind of a bitch in the book. <laughs> I'm not joking. She doesn't care about anybody, anybody. Uh, but you would think with all these premises that I'm talking about that this will be a goofy book, you know, funny. And there are funny points, definitely. But it's not. It's actually a damn good detective novel. And it's, it's gritty. It's not gritty like, uh, you know, like movies we watch now that are gnarly. But it's gritty like classic film noir or classic noir novels like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. It's gritty like that. It's gritty like the Maltese Falcon. It's gritty like Chinatown. So it's not, it's not cartoony and pulling punches. Cartoons are just a circumstance. So definitely worth a read. I still need to rewatch the movie because even though they're not related, I do love that movie. But speaking of movies, I did rewatch this week, something I haven't seen in years that I used to watch all the time as a kid which may explain a lot about my personality, my psyche, is 
Time Bandits. Time Bandits is one of Terry Gilliam's first books, uh, books, first movies. Terry Gilliam, who did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, um, Baron Munchausen, uh, Fisher King, lots of other amazing movies, uh, 12 Monkeys. The reason I say, I may explain things about my psyche is I don't know. I'm going to guess that even though most of the things I watch were pretty, as a kid, were my parents, my, my mom was pretty vigilant. You know, like I, I didn't watch anything. I didn't watch, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies and stuff like that. But Time Man, it's, I mean, it's not dirty and it's not, uh, it's not horror. But it is surreal and it is a, it will screw with your head. And <laughs> it's definitely it's a great one for a kid to watch. But man, this is a good movie. I love it. And I'm pretty sure that my obsession, my lifelong obsession with time travel and time travel stories comes from Time Bandits. Uh, well, uh, what else can I say about it? There, I guess there's something I noticed this time that I'm not, I'm not sure is there, but it does seem to be insinuated some kind of connection between Kevin, the little kid, the main character, his imagination and the things that he goes through trying to find the right words to say this without going really into the whole plot of the movie. There are things that he experiences in particular at the end with the castle of darkness. So you see the evil, you see evil, which I think is actually the official character's name. Um, I've also seen him referred to as evil genius, but you see evil David Warner, uh, in his castle of darkness, talking to his henchmen. And his henchmen are all covered in plastic, like, um, clear plastic, like kind of like ponchos almost, but they have them over their head too. And his desk is covered in plastic and the chair that he's sitting in is covered in plastic. But then that seems weird. And you're like, oh, it might just be, you know, to make it weird. But if you pay attention before Kevin leaves, when you see Kevin's house, when his parents are sitting in their living room, watching TV. They have plastic over their furniture, you know, like old ladies. They have plastic, the same plastic over their furniture. So there seems to be some connection there, right? And by the way, it's not weird that in this story that his parents would be connected to evil because his parents suck. Like his parents really suck. Like this isn't a movie where where a kid is just not appreciating his parents. Like his, 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 he has bad parents, just plain old bad parents. Like they literally, all they do is sit and watch TV and they yell at him when he makes noise because they're trying to watch TV, go to bed and be quiet because they want to watch their game show. They want to watch whatever's on the TV and they don't care about him at all. Uh, you, you see at the end too, like, yeah, I'm not going to go into it. Another thing I noticed though, when he's walking through the castle of darkness, they're showing some parts of the castle and I paused it and I'm like, what is that block right there? You know, it's like this black castle stone. 
it had these weird circles on it. I'm like, that looks like a Lego block kind of. And then the next scene, I saw another one. And then the next scene, I saw another. I'm like, oh yeah, they're insinuating in some way that this castle is made out of Legos. Okay. So once again, plastic on the henchman and on the henchman's lair, plastic on the parent's furniture. Castle made out of Lego blocks. He has Lego blocks. In the final, one of the final battle scenes, who comes in? Cowboys, knights, ancient archers, a tank, a spaceship. Basically, all of the most stereotypical toys that a young boy would have. Cowboys, knights, ancient archers, a tank, a spaceship. And if you remember being a kid, you don't just play with the toys that belong together. You know, like when you pull out your G.I. Joe, I'm going back to my generation, sorry. But you pull out your G.I. Joe, you don't just pull out your other G.I. Joes and just play G.I. Joe. You don't pull out your Transformers and only play with just Transformers. You don't pull out He-Man and only play with Skeletor. You have He-Man in battles with Transformers and G.I. Joe is a sniper up on the hill and you mix them. You got your Ninja Turtles in there too. You mix all your toys together. You have your cowboys fighting against your knights and your ancient armors and your ancient archers and your tanks and your spaceships. So it seems to be, I can't make the connection here completely what it means, but there seems to be a connection between this kid's imaginary world, his imagination, and the manifestations of this other world. Although I don't even know if it's another world. It's technically the same world. This other place. So I started to wonder, is this movie an anti-technology scree? You know, is this something about how technology is killing our imagination? Is that what it's about? I mean, is that actually the message? So when Kevin, one of the places Kevin goes when he's traveling through time is he goes to Greece and he meets Agamemnon, King Agamemnon, played by Sean Connery. Great, great little cameo by him, young Sean Connery. And he wants to stay there. He loves it there. Obviously, like I said, his parents suck. So he wants to stay and Agamemnon is going to take him on as his son and make him his heir to his kingdom. He wants to stay there. He doesn't care about the modern world. He, he's happy to stay in a place with absolutely no technology. Doesn't miss the modern world at all. Because his parents are entranced by television. All they care about is the television. They tell him to shut up, like I said, when he disturbs their television. See this technology thing? This connection here? It's still a little bit tentative. But I think it comes a little bit more clear when Evil, the character Evil, he has a this little back and forth with one of his henchmen about the middle of the movie. And it literally says what I think might be maybe part of the meaning of the movie. He says, when I have the map, I will be free and the world will be different because I will have understanding. And the henchman says, understanding of what, master? Digital watches. And soon I will have understanding of video cassette recorders. 
and car telephones. And when I have the understanding of them, I shall have the understanding of computers. And when I have the understanding of computers, I shall be the supreme being. God isn't interested in technology. He cares nothing for the microchip or the Silicon Revolution. And that made me think about the character evil. What does evil, you know, anytime you watch a movie, you have the bad character, the bad character always wants something. Uh, in the Avengers, the Infinity Saga, what does, uh, what's his purple prune head want? <laughs> Thanos. What does he want? He wants to decimate the population, right? He wants to remove certain amount of the population of the universe so that it's not crowded and people aren't fighting over resources. That's what he wants. I started thinking about what does evil in this movie want? Like he wants to be able to leave. He's trapped in that, in that castle. The Supreme being has trapped him in that castle. He wants to be able to leave there. But what else does he want? He doesn't talk about anything else except for this, this bit about technology. So. As far as I can tell, that's what he wants, technology. So as far as I can tell, the movie in some way is a creativity versus technology argument. I don't know. Watch it. Let me know. Uh, where the hell did I watch it? I don't remember. I watched it. Maybe was it, uh, might've been on Amazon. I don't know. You can find it. You're, you're a big person. You figured out how to download a podcast and play it. <laughs> All right. Let's do an article, a little short article from Tim Urban, his website, pretty well-known blog called Wait But Why. Uh, this came up in something else, and this is an older article. I actually don't remember when it's from. But I do have a link here. I don't answer that question. That's my link. <laughs> This is from 2016. This is about uh, a word that he made up. And the word is cluey. C-L-U-E-Y. And the name relates to a story that his father told him. And in the story, the story is about when his father was a young boy. And when his father was a young boy, his grandfather, Tim Urban's grandfather, bought the board game Clue and he brought it home and he was so excited and he wanted to play with Tim's father, his son, and his, and his siblings. He wanted, he brought this board game home and he wanted to play this board game with his kids. So he took all the time, you know, he set it all up and put all the pieces out and, you know, probably put the cards inside the envelope. You got the three cards, the who, the what, and how inside that all little envelope. And he's all set and ready to play. The kids are sitting there. And then a neighbor kid comes by and calls the other kids out to come and play. And so all the kids bail on dad. And that's where the word comes from. Because cluey is a sentimental sense of sadness. Imagining what it felt like for his grandfather to sit there and be like, just pure disappointment. I wanted to play that game with them and now they're gone. But in reality, it probably wasn't that big of a deal for him. 
right? You're imagining it, you're feeling sad about it. But for him, it was probably like, well, I missed my opportunity. He put it away, put it up there, probably grabbed a beer and sat down and watched television. Uh, quotes from two quotes from the article. First one, it's an odd feeling of intense, heartbreaking compassion for people who didn't actually go through anything especially bad. Second one, the weight of my heartache in these cases outweighs the actual tragedy, like 10,000 to one. Another example he gives is uh, he was leaving his building and there's like this thing as a UPS guy kind of waiting for someone to open the door to the building. It has like an apartment complex type thing so that he can bring all these boxes that he has in. And he didn't notice the guy there until after he went through and the door closed and the guy just kind of went, he says, could you open the door for me? And he said, sorry, don't have time right now. And left the dude there. And then he was thinking about it afterwards, thinking about what it was like for that guy, that poor guy, cluey. He felt cluey. It's over sentimentality about something that you think some, a hardship you think somebody went through when they probably didn't. And I love that because I suffer from this severely. I remember one time, uh, see, when, I, when I was younger, my mom would buy me clothes all the time, but she would, you know, we were a single parent and uh, we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, it wasn't high fashion. You know, was, we were shopping for Mervyn's and Kmart. And sometimes clearance stuff, you know, and sometimes you just buy stuff. And I'd be like, mm. if I put it in the closet, I would never wear it as it was dorky and I wouldn't wear it, you know? And I remember specifically, there was this one fleece pullover. And one day, this was many years later, as I was an adult, pulled it out. And here's this, you know, perfectly good fleece pullover that I had never worn. And I felt cluey. I felt cluey in that moment, like, oh. And what a, what a douchebag I was as a kid, you know, I just felt so bad in that moment. I don't know if she ever put a second thought into it, but in that moment I was like, Ooh, that feels gross. And, uh, I'm also susceptible to clueiness because, uh, clueiness as Tim says in here, the movies are, are on to clueiness and they use it to their advantage. And uh, movies make me emotional. I am an emotional movie viewer. And uh, the one example that Tim Urban mentions in the article is the old man in Home Alone. Think about him before Kevin talked to him. This poor old man, lonely. His grandfather, he can't be near his granddaughter because him and his, his son had a fight. And here's this little boy that lives next door that he has no ill will towards, but he sees him and screams and runs away from him every time. Poor misunderstood, misunderstood old man. Cluey. <laughs> Great word. Add it to your vocabulary. Okay, moving along. We have another movie. Yeah, I watched two movies this week. I also read two books. <laughs> so this movie is called Paranoid Park. So I think this is 2007. This is a movie by Gus Van Zant. You may recognize Gus Van Zant's name. He did some of the more um, mainstream or big movies that he did. He's mostly known as a, an independent director, but he's done some mainstream stuff. For example, he directed Goodwill Hunting. He also 
directed To Die For with Nicole Kidman. And he did the, he's, he's the one that did the shot by shot remake of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho with Naomi Watts. Um, but I think he's best remembered for two films that were his indie films that are considered two of the best indie films of all time Drugstore Cowboy and My Own Private Idaho. This particular movie, Paranoid Park, was made later. This was made between Last Days, which is the movie he made, which is a thinly disguised movie about Kurt Cobain, and Milk, the movie about Harvey Milk with Sean Penn. This film, Paranoid Park, is the epitome of an independent film. Uh, the voiceover, this is you have a young boy. This is the story of a young boy. And the voiceover is supposed to be him reading from his journal, and it's very stilted, and sometimes he's reading like this, which works perfectly, because it reads not only as the kids reading, a young boy reading his journal aloud, probably wouldn't read it passionately, and also it reads like the way that he would write it. You know, he's saying something, he's like, we thought about this, then we did go to the park. You know, it's like, he's just like, really basic descriptions of things. There's a, there's a great scene where <clears throat> the main character, whose name I can't remember right now, is in a coffee shop and he's talking to this young girl. And the young girl is obviously an amateur actress. And so is, so is the boy. He's using, making use of the amateur actors in this movie on purpose. And there's a point where she's talking and she breaks like the rule of movie acting. She looks, looks into the lens of the camera. She looks into the lens of the camera and then catches herself and looks away. And normally it's like, oh, ruined, do the scene over. But something about that, like it breaks the fourth wall just, just for a second, but it makes it really charming. And I can't explain it. I loved it. I, like I saw that, I rewound, I watched it again. I'm like, that's a great moment. I could see why he left that. The other thing, actually, the main thing I would say about this movie is it has to do with the soundtrack. Because the soundtrack is continually mismatched to the scenes purposefully. So, like, you have a scene near the beginning, maybe even, I think it's like the first or the second scene, where people are skateboarding. So you would think you need, like, some kind of, like, pop punk or something, you know, like, something active. But instead, it's this, uh, I don't even know, it's like a, an ambient track that's just kind of like, it sounds like chains dropping. Like it's, it completely ruins the momentum of the action that you're seeing. Then you have another scene where the main character is called to the, it's not called to the principal's office, but he's called to a room to talk to a police officer. And he's walking down the hallway. It's this long it's like a, almost two minutes of just the camera backing up while he's walking down the hallway. Nothing going on. He's just walking down the hallway. <clears throat> but then there's this jump in like 1950s tune playing. Like just completely the wrong mood. Or there's a scene where him and his friend are in the car and they're talking. And it's like this quiet scene at night where they're just talking in the car. And then all of a sudden you get this screaming hardcore song. So he's continually using the music against the scenes instead of 
instead of trying to enhance it, enhance it, you know, like, oh, sad moment, play sad music. Instead, he would play something completely different. Not the opposite, just different. And I think what he's doing here is he's playing with what happens in every other movie. Most soundtracks lead us. They manipulate us and sometimes they reveal things. What I mean by that is if it's going to be a sad scene, they play sad music. So you follow, okay, this is a moment where I'm supposed to be sad. It's manipulating you a little bit. Sometimes it reveals things like somebody's walking into a dark room, ominous music. You know something bad's going to happen before it happens because the music just told you, right? You see a character for the first time, ominous music, that's a villain. Now you can use that to play in the trick people, but for the most part, they're, that's still leading, right? They're leading you. So what he's doing here is not leading you. He's not letting the music give you any information, not only about what's going on, but how you should feel in the moment. And what that forces you to do is make choices yourself about how you feel what's going on. And it gives you this weird detachment from the story. But I think, I think that's the point. It's this weird detachment where he's not trying to tell you how to feel about what happens in the movie. And by being detached, maybe you're getting a better perspective from which you can make that choice. In a way, the movie kind of, remember I told you about the book, the Phil K. Dick book, I think it was last week's episode, Ubik, Ubik. This reminds me of that. I said Ubik kept changing, kept changing the rules, that the book kept becoming something different. You think it's this kind of book, then it's this kind of book. This movie is like that in a way. Is this a murder mystery? Is this a coming of age film? Is this a love story? It evades all of those, but at the same time, it doesn't deny any of them. So one of the decisions you have to make is how, what lens are you viewing this movie through? You have to make that choice. And there's, there's a one moment in the film where something, somebody makes a, a bad choice, right? That is, it's, it's a big moment because so much of the actual plot revolves around that moment and the consequences of that moment. But in the movie, he doesn't drag that moment out. He doesn't amp the moment up. He doesn't give it any more time. He doesn't give it any more music. It happens and it's, it's just something that happens in a second. There's no, the character's not sitting there debating, what do I do? What do I do? What do I, it just happens. It's done. They move on to the next thing. Most of our choices are like that in life. Think, think about most of like the things that you've decided on. What actually happens a lot of times is we, we just do something in the moment. And then afterwards we go, our, our logical brain starts going, okay, we, we built the debate afterwards. We manufacture the story of why we did it afterwards. Why'd you do that? I don't know. And then maybe because of this, and then that becomes your story. The TV show that I've been telling you about, I've been watching Cold Case. So many of the stories in that show, yes, they're fictional, but so many of those stories, it's, it's all murder. So many of those stories come down to them when you unravel the story, comes down to somebody close to the person making a decision in the moment, killing them, and then instantly 
regretting it. In true crime, that's too, too. It's not just in fiction. It's in true crime as well. So many of our choices happen in just an instant. We don't actually, you know, we try to build up this moral idea that there's this debate. Like, what do I do? What do I do? Should I, you know, like when somebody has a gun, should I shoot this person? Should I not? And I, I don't think that debate happens. People are just holding the gun a lot of times and then boom, they shoot. Why'd you do that? I don't know. And then they build a story afterwards. It's, it's a dangerous argument because it upends the whole criminal justice system and the whole idea of responsibility, possibly. But it's, I think it's, it's the argument in some way that this film inches towards. Now, like I said, this film isn't trying to tell you what to think about it, but I do think that it's, it's dipping its toe in that water. And I'm reminded of Sam Harris's book, Free Will. In that book, he talks about how there are invisible motivations behind everything that we do that we're not aware of. And we talk about this idea of free will, but if we truly have free will, then we should be aware of everything that's buried down on the choice that we made. You know, like, do I steal this? Do I not steal this? It's not just about the circumstance of that moment that helps you decide that. It's also your whole life things that you don't even remember, things that have shaped your psyche. So how is it really free if you're not aware of them? That's his argument. So that's what I thought about watching this movie. It is a trippy movie. If you don't like independent films, you probably won't like it. Just gotta be honest, but I liked it. I like Cus Van Zandt in general. Okay, we are nearing the end. Oh, we're doing good on time. We're nearing the end of the media section. I have two more things, and then we're going to get into the feature. And the feature is big. It's the thing about 411, missing 411. Okay. Well, let's, let's do this. The other book that I read this week was The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. This is one of Agatha Christie's most famous novels. This is my first Agatha Christie. I've never read any Agatha Christie before. This is also my first introduction to her famous fictional detective, Hercule Poirot. Hercules? No, it's Hercule. Hercule Poirot, um, which I'm destined to love him because he's basically a Belgian Sherlock Holmes. Basically, almost identical <laughs> in character. So uh, obviously I enjoyed the book, but, uh, it's going to be hard to talk about this book because there's so much I want to tell you, but in order to tell you so many things, I'm going to have to tell you the end of the book. And as you can imagine, detective novels in 1920s hinged around one thing. Who is the killer? Right? There weren't a lot of books that were outside of that formula. This book is no different. This is a whodunit. And I'm not going to tell you who done it, but I will tell you that while as a concept, the book relies on the surprise of the who done it, knowing the answer to this, usually when you get to, if you get to the end of a mediocre who done it, you know, like a, a lot of the TV who done it's are kind of mediocre, right? There's not a, nothing super innovative about them. You get to the end, you find out who it is. It kind of deflates the story a little bit. Like, oh, okay, the end, I'm good. You don't think much about it afterwards. It was a fun ride, but now it's over. You're, you know, that's it. 
the surprise is done. Therefore, the, you know, the pinata has been, has been broken. That's not what happens here, though. You get to the end, you find out who it is. But Agatha Christie, what she did with this book, and this is where I have to be very careful with my wording. The revelation of who the killer is reveals more than just who the killer is. It reveals actually the cleverness in the construction of the book. And knowing who the killer is transforms the book completely. It becomes a completely different book. Like, it's literally like, you know, in like uh, movies where somebody like casts a spell over a city or something and the whole city transforms. That's like what happens to this book. Like you get to the end, you're like, whoa. And then now it's a different book. It just looks completely different to you. because so you see everything through a completely different lens. And knowing, let me put it this way. I've watched still, and I have most of my life, watched a lot of crime shows, fictional, non-fictional, a lot of fictional, non-fictional crime movies, read a lot of true crime books. Okay. When it comes to fictional crime, most of the conventions that are used now have been borrowed from people before people who innovated people like Agatha Christie, and those things are used over and over again. For example, strangers on the train, which is a Hitchcock film, almost, I'd say about half the cop shows I've ever seen end up having a strangers on the train episode. Strangers on the Train episode is where two wives hire or make a deal with each other to kill each other's husband. So, oh, I didn't kill my husband. Yeah, but this lady did. Oh, and she didn't kill her husband, but I did. That's the whole plot of it. But they all use that as a convention over and over again. And I mean, honestly, how many modern criminals are watching Hitchcock films for ideas on how to commit crimes? But anyways, that's a convention that's used over and over again, and it becomes a trope. I think a lot of the things that Agatha Christie did became tropes too. Some of the stuff in this book probably became tropes. And that's probably why me having watched so many crime things and been exposed to so many of these tropes and so many of these things, that's probably why I guess who the killer was about halfway through the book. But here's the brilliant thing about Agatha Christie's writing. A lot of times when you watch something or you're reading something and you guess who the killer is, after that moment, you go, it's this person. And then you see a scene and you're like, oh, there's proof. Oh, there's proof. They start, you know, once this, once it's cracked, everything starts slipping out of the seams because you've seen, you've seen what's in there. So it kind of ruins the rest of the experience for you because everything just confirms that you're right. That didn't happen for me here. I was like, I know who the killer is, but then there would be hints here and there. I go, oh yeah, that, that seems to prove my point, but I'm still not sure that it does. I was pretty confident, but she kept me questioning until the end. So Agatha Christie, I have to say, I'm down to read more of her books because I honestly didn't think I'd enjoy it as much as I did. It's awesome. And that's considered one of her best.
And uh, I remembered as well that there was, uh, actually, I didn't remember this. I searched. I wanted to see if there was an adaptation of the book. I wanted to see how they would do it as a movie. So that says a lot about how much I enjoyed the book. And then I saw Poirot, which was a TV show. And I'd, I've never seen it. It's a, it's, I always want to say it's a BBC TV show, but it's actually, it's English. I don't think it's BBC though. I think it's another channel. So I saw that they did an episode of the show about, you know, adapt, adapting the book, which is interesting because it's an ongoing show with him as a character. And the premise of this book, I guess I should at least clarify this. The premise of the book is Paul Rowe is retired as a detective and he's moved to this town where nobody knows him. And he's just kind of living anonymously. And I thought it was interesting that they would do it in this TV show where you have a repeating character. <clears throat> and this is season seven, episode one. So what I found interesting first is how they reshuffled the book format to accommodate the television format. Uh, one of the big things that's different is in the book is narrated by Dr. Shepard, which is a character in the book, obviously. In the TV show, Dr. Shepard is not the narrator. Poirot is. And they also made some affordances for the character, the television persona of Poirot which we'll get into more by what I mean by that, but they just made some concessions. Seven seasons, they've been building this character up, right? Because Agatha Christie wrote a lot of Poirot books, but she didn't write. I don't think she wrote enough for all these episodes. Some of these episodes are purely written for the TV show. So they've done things with the character that aren't really the character according in the Agatha Christie um, Poirot verse. Some of the big differences in the book, I mean, in the TV show versus the book, they cut out two characters slash suspects completely. I was about 10 minutes in and I realized I'm like, whoa, that person's missing and that person's missing. Uh, that's one of the things that was great about the book that really made me enjoy her writing was she was able to juggle a lot of characters without it getting confusing. That's, that's a good talent. Uh, there's a person in the book who they, they, in the TV show, they kind of bungle the person's motivations. There's something that the person, a, a person does in the book that has to deal with them not knowing all of the details until a later point. But in the TV show, they give the character all of the details right away. So that there's no motivation for why they do something that they do. It was a weird choice. Um, <clears throat> And Poirot, I was talking about the character. He's a completely different person. Uh, Agatha Christie's Poirot is, like I said, he's, he's, he's Belgian Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes is distant. He's distant because he's, he's brilliant and he sees things that other people don't see. And it separates him from people. You know, if you're continually noticing details other people don't notice, they feel weird around you. And they feel like they're always being observed. That's the thing about Sherlock Holmes. And he's consumed by puzzles. Both of the men are consumed by puzzles. Although uh, Poirot 
would word it differently. He always talks about using his little gray cells, his brain cells. And he's, he's driven by truth, not necessarily the puzzle. Sherlock Holmes is driven by the puzzle. Poirot is more about truth. But the Poirot on the TV show, especially this episode, is so weird because everybody likes him. He's super popular in the town. And Aykroyd, Roger Aykroyd, who gets murdered, right? That's the name of the book, is his friend. He's not the stranger that he is in the book. You know, everybody's a stranger to him in the book because he's just moved there. But him and Roger Aykroyd are old friends. And when, when he's offered the case, Poirot declines at first because he's so upset about the death of his friend. And it's so weird. It's like they're working so hard to make you like the character that they actually just made a different character. And I, just, I thought that was really strange. And what, it, what all these things ended up doing was it ended up taking an extraordinary detective novel and making it into a mundane TV show. So I would I'd probably enjoy the show. I don't mind watching mundane detective shows. I watched a ton of them. Uh, I just thought it was weird. Like, why would you bother adapting the book? Like, just write an episode, another episode. So that's the end of the media center. My throat is still getting dry. And we still have a big chunk to go. All right, let's just get into it. Let's jump right into it. Missing 411. This is specifically, this is a series of books um, by David Polides or Polides. I'm going to go with Polides. This one is the first one, I believe, which is Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. Essentially what this is, is it's not really, there's no structure to the book in the sense that it's literally just uh, a grouping by state or region and then within that a listing of cases excuse me and the and the information about the cases of people missing that's it there's not a lot of uh editorializing going on well there is but there's not supposed to be one of the things he says all the time is, oh, I'm not trying to make an argument here. And I think the, the book kind of suffers from not having an argument to string it together. It reads more, it tries to read more like a case file. But the problem is, and the reason I'm writing about this is I've only read uh, about 60 pages of this, this book. It's a 400-page book. One of the problems I have with it is he, he tries to present himself as unbiased. And that he's just presenting the information on these cases, but he's got bias all over the place. It's just bleeding into the seams. And a lot of it is really bad thinking. It's a lot of it is really, really flimsy, bad logic. And I think the book serves as a good lens to view the paranormal as a, as a topic and <clears throat> True crime as a topic because, wow, super frog in my throat there. Because the mistakes that he and logic that he makes here are endemic of paranormal media and true crime media. I see it all over the place. And it's why so many of those things, especially like paranormal stuff, is just complete bullshit. So is some, of, some of it is just complete ridiculous nonsense. 
So what I'm not doing before we go into this, what I am not trying to do here is number one, I'm not trying to say that some, if not many of the disappearances in this book, I'm not trying to say they're not mysterious because it, I do believe that there are some strange cases in here. I do think there are a lot that are kind of reasonably explained without much effort, but there are some that are just really strange. So I'm not trying to take away from that. I'm also not trying to criticize Polites as a person. I don't know him. I'm just focusing on the thinking. And I'm also not trying to debunk paranormal explanations. I am interested in paranormal explanations of things sometimes. But I, I don't know what happened here. I can't say, you know, nobody does. That's why these are mysterious. Some of them, the ones that are mysterious. Okay. I can't debunk the paranormal excuse out of it because nobody could debunk anything out of it until it's explained. It's that simple. But I think that, like I said, so much of this poor thinking is common. And on top of that poor reading that people read these books and they blindly accept the poor logic in them as good logic because they're not reading them carefully. And they're doing that because it's just the desire to be interested in this stuff. And like, that's okay. You know, like I believe that there are strange things out there that are beyond the current model of the world. I absolutely believe that because I'm not an arrogant asshole. I don't believe I know everything. I don't believe that any of us know everything. And I don't believe that all of us put together know everything. But in order to begin to look at those type of things, in order to begin to look at the strange and the paranormal and the unexplained things, what we have to do first is we have to turn on the windshield wipers and smack away all the crap that's splattered on the windshield. And that crap is lies, con jobs, fictions, and just plain terrible thinking. The only way we're going to find the good cases that prove if something is actually strange or paranormal or beyond the normal is if we are able to get rid of all the stuff that's bullshit and look at the quality ones, knock out all the other stuff. That's how I feel about these things is yes, I'm interested in them, but I'm more than happy to debunk all of the BS. I'm more than happy to do what I'm going to do here, which is point out that there's a lot of bad thinking here. And then if you're going to follow this bad thinking, the, the, the reason, I guess, maybe the reason that this is so important to me is because I've heard not only this guy interviewed multiple times, but I've heard other people talking about this book and every single time I've come across this book, everybody talks about everything in it as if it's exactly perfect logic and everything in it should be believed. And so that's why I bought the book. Like you can't buy this book on Amazon. I mean, you can, it's like $99 on Amazon for some reason. You have to buy it directly from him and it's like $26 and then you have to pay shipping too. But I was like, I'm going to get it. I check it out. And I started reading it and then I kept running across things that I was circling and writing, no, or you're dumb. So that's why I'm here to point this out. This is thing, something that I've been stewing on for a while. Okay. 
So let's start with something that we need to talk about before we even get into the actual specifics of the book. Something that Polides does in all of his interviews that I've heard is he talks about how there's a conspiracy to cover something up within the national parks. Every one of them. And he mentions it in the book too. He hints at it. I don't think he uses those exact words in the books. He hints at it. And he tells basically the same story over and over again. You know, like the, the details and the dollar amounts seem to fluctuate and grow the more he tells them. But the basic idea of the story is he wants to write a book about missing people. So he goes to national parks and because he wants to write about people who didn't, you don't want to write about people who went missing in the city because that's a different problem. He wants to write about people who went missing in nature. So he goes to the national parks and he makes a request. I think, I think he does it twice. I think the first time he requests as I'm a member of the press and he gets declined. So then he files a, a Freedom of Information Act, FOIA. <clears throat> and he says, you know, they, they looked him up and they tell him, sorry, we can't fill this because even though you've written two books before, they're, they're not in enough libraries. His, his first two books are self-published. So yeah, they're not in enough libraries. And he says like, oh, this goes against the whole policy. Uh, they, they tell him, we can't do it because it goes against policy, right? They look him up. They say his books aren't in enough libraries. He has self-published books. Your books aren't in enough libraries. And this goes against our policy. And in addition... There's no one unified list that tells all the missing people in all of the national parks. So he says, fine, fine. How much would it cost for me to pay for someone to collate all of this and compile a list for me? And then he's told in the book, he says, he's told that Yosemite alone, just one park would cost $37,848. Like I said, the numbers fluctuate. I think at one point he tells a story, they give him like a million dollars to do all of them or something like that, or a hundred thousand dollars to do all of them. Some enormous number. Okay. And he claims that this is a conspiracy on the part of the MPS to cover something up. And he also loves saying that this is illegal. It's against the law and you can't decline a FOIA. You can't decline a Freedom of Information Act. Here's what Pleiades doesn't tell you. And remind, remember, I'm not attacking him on a personal level. I'm pointing out a detail that may explain his story here. Okay. What he doesn't tell you is, yes, he says every, in every interview that he was a police officer for se about 17 years and that he worked in both Fremont and San Jose, California. San Jose, California is where I am right now. What he doesn't tell you, uh, is that he didn't retire. He was fired. David Pleiades was fired from the, from the force because of fraud. He was fired from the force because he was going around to celebrities. He had got a hold of, he had a, a position. I think his last position was some sort of desk job. So he had access to city stationery. And he was using the city stationery to send letters to celebrities, asking them for autographs and memorabilia. And they were sending him autographs and memorabilia because he told them that they were for a project he was working on for the city. 
that he was, I think it was like a, some kind of display that he was putting up in the hall of justice or something like that. There was no project. He was using the city letterhead and this fictional story to get valuable memorabilia and autographs from people for himself. And that's why he was fired for fraud. I think they, they said it was fraudulating or fr fraud of a charity, I think is what they called it. Uh, I got most of the information on that from a 1996 San Jose Mercury article about it when it happened. Okay. There's a reason I brought that up. Like I said, not a personal attack of him, but before going down this road of missing 411, which he's written many, many books. I think he has like at least six of these missing 411 books and two documentaries. He, he wrote two books, two self-published books, the two books that the NPS national park service supposedly said weren't in enough libraries. Both of those books were about Bigfoot. The two books that he mentioned were, that he had written already, were Hoopa Project, Bigfoot Encounters from 2008, and Tribal Bigfoot from 2009. So the reason I'm telling you both of those things is, now let's go back and look at that story from the perspective of the national parks. You work for the national parks. You get a phone call from someone who wants a list of all the missing people in all the parks. Very sensitive data. He says he's a journalist. You look him up. You find out he is a police officer who was fired for fraud and that he's written two books. And those two books are self-published books about Bigfoot. Are you going to give him that information? No. So what you do is you give him a big number. You tell him that you deny his FOIA request. He's not in enough libraries. That's probably what happened. Let's be honest. It's not a conspiracy. It's just they didn't trust giving him that kind of sensitive information. And to be clear also, that is not against the law. You know, I mean, imagine that. Like, hey, Joe, this guy wants to know how much it would cost to have the list made. Tell him something stupid. Just uh, tell him your salary. You know, they just made a number up. But it's not illegal to deny a FOIA request like he continually says. So, but you don't have to believe me. Here, watch. You can find out the answer to this in less than two minutes. And for somebody who calls himself a researcher, I would assume that he knows this as well because it's so easy to find. Go to Google or Bing or whatever and type in FOIA. F-O-I-A. Click it. And now your first result most likely is going to be foia.gov, foia.gov, the website for Freedom of Information Act. Click that website. When you get to that website, you're going to see this little thing in the bottom right-hand side that says glossary. Click glossary. Scroll down to the letter E or the things that begin with E, and you'll start to see things in E called exemptions. You could read all the exemptions. There's about uh, 10 of them. There, it's like one through eight, but there are subdivisions of some of them. Two that I would like to point out in particular. Exemption 7A. 
protects records or information compiled for law enforcement purposes, but only to the extent that the production of such law enforcement records of information could reasonably be expected to interfere with law enforcement proceedings. In other words, you can file a Freedom of Information Act request, but we're not going to give you stuff on an open case. Duh. Watch Law & Order for two episodes, and you would already have been able to guess that. Number two, specifically exemption number two, protects information related solely to the internal personal personnel rules and practices of an agency. Does that sound familiar? Maybe that's what they meant when they said it goes against policy. So, yeah, FOIA is not this absolute thing that he likes to present it as. So those are two things that you really need to understand before you get in here. Now let's get to the actual book. So he lists nine unique factors to the disappearances within the book. And he says that he believes these are all common. One thing that should be pointed out here as well is these are not all of the missing cases that he found. And it's slyly in there in the introduction when he says, These are just the ones that fit my criteria. So in other words, he cherry-picked what's in there. Now he says he didn't cherry-pick for these reasons, that he cherry-picked for other reasons. Uh, But the fact is that you have to take that into account. But anyways, the things that he says in common among all, all or most of these cases. Number one, we're rural setting. Number two, dogs. Number three, bloodhounds and canines can't track the scent. Number four, storms. Number five, afternoon disappearances. Number six, swamps and briar patches. Number seven, conscious or semi-conscious state. This is when the people are found. Number eight, berries. Number nine, clothing removed. I'm just going to talk about two of these here. Dogs. So what he says about dogs says, quote, dogs play a major role in many of the disappearances. Sometimes the dogs disappear with the victim and are found later with the person. Other times dogs disappear and return home without the person. Sometimes the dogs disappear and are never found. This requires careful reading here. Hopefully you caught that, but he's not actually making a point at all. In fact, what he's done is cover all of his bases. You know, he says dogs play a major role in many of the disappearances. So what does that mean? It means that dogs aren't in every case. So condition number one is that sometimes there aren't dogs. Okay. Well, what are the other ones he lists? Let's, let's just look at this. Sometimes the dogs disappear and we find them with the person. Sometimes the dogs disappear. Sorry, let me say that again. Sometimes the dogs disappear with the people and we find them with the people. Sometimes the dogs disappear with the people and we only find the dog. Sometimes the dogs disappear with the people and we only find the people, not the dog. And sometimes there just aren't dogs. So he's literally covered every single permutation of what's possible. That means nothing. There is no commonality of dogs here. 
because he's covered the bases in every single way. Well, you know, sometimes they're with the person. Sometimes they're not with the person. Sometimes the dog comes back. Sometimes only the person comes back. Sometimes there just aren't dogs. And that means there's a commonality of dogs in all these cases. No, no, it doesn't. That's a non-fact. It's a non-statement. It's like saying sometimes it's hotter than 90 degrees. Sometimes it's hotter than 80 degrees. And sometimes it's just not hot. But the one thing they all have in common, it's hot. No. This is the kind of logic that we're talking about here. Can you, can you start to understand why this frustrates me so much? That this book is lauded so much, but it's full of these fallacies. Let's go to berries. People discover and are found in the middle of berry bushes. They go missing while picking berries, and some are found while eating berries. Almost covers every permutation there, right? Almost does the same thing. But here's the thing. I told you, he's only covering cases that take place in nature. And this book specifically is about Western United States and Canada. Can you find a lot of places in the Western United States and Canada that are nature that don't have berries? <laughs> berries everywhere. How is that significant? And also, what does he associate the significance of the berries to anyways? Oh, there's there's berries in all these cases. What is there, like some berry-killing cult out there? Or maybe the, the berries are alive and they're killing people? No. He never says this. In fact, he brags about this, like I said, not having a thesis in this book. But you really only have to look back to those books that he wrote before this one to find out why he's talking about berries, because he's insinuating Bigfoot, which I'm fine with. But if you're going to insinuate Bigfoot, insinuate Bigfoot. Don't pussyfoot around it and pretend that you're being some kind of like, oh, just the facts, ma'am. You're not. Next one. This is about FLIR. You heard of FLIR imaging? It's a, FLIR imaging is an acronym. It stands for forward-looking infrared. This is thermal imaging, okay? It's different than, you know, like a predator. You see like the green and all that stuff. I'm pretty sure this is just, you see white. Everything else is dark gray. So he's talking about FLIR in the case of Lynn Marie Hillier. Four weeks after Lynn Marie went missing, her body was found underneath a fallen log. And Pleiades, about this, Pleiades says, I think it's an amazing coincidence, if you believe in coincidences, that the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mountain Mounted Police, put up aircraft equipped, equipped with FLIR to look for heat signatures on the ground, did not find her, and then Lynn Marie was found by hunters underneath an old log. In all the searches I have ever read about, this is one of the rare times that FLIR was used and one of the only times a child was found under something as penetrable by FLIR as a log. Sounds logical, right? Oh my God, I can't believe that happened. This is the way people read this. But here's the problem. Logs can't be penetrated by FLIR. Doesn't work that way. Heat doesn't go through logs. So it's not that weird that they didn't see her under a log because they're up above in a helicopter, logs above her, heat is not visible through wood. As a matter of fact, you don't have to believe me. 
go to FLIR's website. They have an article called Can Thermal Imaging See Through Walls and Other Common Questions? About three-fourths of the way down that page, you'll see a question. Can thermal imaging see through trees? There's a picture of a FLIR imaging in a forest, that gray thing with the white object, like I told you. Underneath that picture, it says thermal imaging cannot see through trees or wood. So basically what he said there means nothing. In fact, funnily enough, 40 pages later, regarding the case of Derek Engebretston, police seems to suddenly know this. And he says, the shelter probably could not have been penetrated by FLIR as there were large logs utilized in the construction. So tell me, Paul, or David, <laughs> sorry, tell me, David, can FLIR see through wood or can't it? You say both. One of the other things about this book that's baffling to me is his complete ignorance of how hypothermia works, considering how many times he has to talk about it. People going missing in the wild are going to be facing exposure, hypothermia. He has no understanding of how hypothermia occurs. And he seems to outright deny the existence of paradoxical undressing. So what's paradoxical undressing? Paradoxical undressing is basically to shut down heat loss. So if you're, if you're freezing, you're cold, right? Not even freezing. You're cold. You're giving a lot of heat off of your extremities. You know, your fingers, top of your head, your feet, your extremities are pushing out a lot of heat. So to shut down some of that heat loss, the body compensates by something called vasoconstriction. And vasoconstriction is contraction of your blood vessels, tightens up all your blood inside. After a while, the muscles that do that, they obviously, they become exhausted. It can't keep it up forever. It's not meant to do it forever. And they get exhausted and they start to fail. And what happens when they start to fail, the muscles holding the vasoconstriction is they release the vasoconstriction. When that happens, all of that warm blood that it's been constricting and keeping safe rushes back out of your core to your extremities. And it moves out so fast that people experience hot flashes. And they're disoriented because they're out there, they're, they're cold, a lot of times they're wet, and they suddenly feel like they're burning up. So they take off their clothes. Paradoxical undressing. It's paradoxical because it seems, oh my God, you're cold. Why would you take off your clothes? Because you don't feel cold in that moment. You feel like you're burning up. So let's look at the case of Daryl Webley. Politis gives four reasons why he thinks that that case is unusual. Number two, he says, it was a cold night with bad weather. Nobody removes clothing when it's moderately cold. Okay. Here's somebody covering his bases again, covering both of his bases again. Did you listen to that sentence? It was a cold night with bad weather. It was moderately cold. It was a cold night with, that's the same sentence. He puts those two things in the same sentence. It was a cold night with bad weather. It was moderately cold. Which was it? Was it bad or was it moderate? It can't be both. The 1949 account from the Lewiston Tribune said of this story, the boy, Daryl Webley, 
was almost nude and badly scratched when the dog led rescuers to him. He was cold and wet after a 14-hour experience, during which rain fell and the temperature dropped to 35 degrees. Would you call that moderate? Maybe if you're from Alaska, you would call that moderate. But when it comes to body temperature, 35 degrees is not moderate. I want to see you stand outside for 14 hours. And we're going to take the temperature at some point down to as low as 35 degrees. And we're going to have it rain on you. And then you tell me, was it bad or was it moderate? Had that rain, was it bad or was it moderate? Because, you know, it's cold. But when you get wet, it's a lot colder. The real question, though, is, was the weather, was it unusual for him to be naked? That's the question, right? That's, that's what this is all about. And that depends on whether he was able, in those conditions, to suffer from hypothermia. Because if he didn't have hypothermia, if he wasn't capable of getting hypothermia, then he couldn't do the paradoxical undressing. And then maybe his point about the being naked makes sense. Because remember, nobody removes clothing when it's moderately cold. Okay, was it moderately cold? Was it, or was it cold enough that Webley could have had hypothermia? As I said, it was 35 degrees and it rained. And according to the University of Michigan Health, they have, a, they have an article on hypothermia. It says your body temperatures can drop to a low level at temperatures of 50 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. So even higher than 50 degrees can drop your core temperature if it's wet and windy. Or if you're in 60 degrees in 60 degree water, like if you're swimming in 60 degree water. So hypothermia, theoretically, if it's windy and wet, in other words, bad weather, as the news report and Politis himself say, bad weather can mean hypothermia can begin to set in at 50 degrees or higher, and it went down to 35. So most likely the boy had hypothermia. In fact, Politis himself admits that the boy suffered from exposure, but he chooses the word exposure. Exposure and hypothermia are the same thing. It's just different terminology. So yeah, it's not that strange that he took off his clothes because paradoxical undressing happens when people get hypothermia. Not every time. Nothing happens every time. Conditions are different for everyone. And I know it may sound like I'm nitpicking this book here, but I want you to know that in the introduction of the book, he says, every story in this book is 100% factual. When you make a statement like that, you better be able to hold up to some kind of scrutiny, especially if it's scrutiny of your logic. Present yourself as an unbiased researcher, but then your bias is bleeding all over it and your bias is full of fallacy. That's what bothers me so much about some of the paranormal and true crime communities is they swallow these things up so easily. They don't test these things. Is this guy being logical? Are these facts? Is this really a fact? Can Fleer not see through wood? Test it. Keep only the strongest evidence. Get rid of all the junk. As I find myself saying all the time, I want to believe. Fox Mulder, right? I want to believe. 
but I don't want to turn off my brain to do it. And I feel like this book in some ways is asking you to turn off your brain. Page 44, quote, six people have disappeared in the Crater Lakes region during the winter months. That sounds highly suspicious, doesn't it? Six people. What time period did this occur in? Man, if that happened in one year, that's really suspicious. It wasn't one year. If that happened in six years, that's suspicious. That's one person every year. Didn't happen in six years. If it happened in 20 years, it'd still be curious. It didn't happen in 20 years. The six people he's talking about that disappeared was in a hundred year period. I don't know if six people disappearing over a hundred years from one place is even statistically abnormal. That's like one person every 15 or 16 years. That's not that strange. Most of us live in cities and towns where people disappear more frequently than that. And we don't feel unsafe. So is that abnormal? I don't know. But he seems to assume it is. Now we have the case of Robert Michael Bobo. Quote, Robert was known to wear a distinctive hat that he never went anywhere without. This was located on the ground at his campsite. Law enforcement believes that he went in search of another campsite when he was injured and became unable to move. This doesn't sound plausible to me. According to his family, Robert would not travel anywhere without his hat. Are you kidding me? Literally, the only logic he has for this case is the guy wouldn't have disappeared because he left behind his hat. That's his logic. He, he went, uh, you know, like, hey, you know, guys, uh, uh, I'm just going to go over in these bushes over here and take a leak. I I'll be right back. Oh, oh, wait, what's going on? I can't seem to leave. Something holding me back like a force field. I, my hat. I forgot my hat. That's what it is. I can't leave without my hat. I, for, I forgot my hat. He talks about it like this guy leaving without his hat is a physical impossibility. Nobody cares that much about a hat. And here's the funniest part about it. He makes this big deal about how this guy wouldn't do anything without his hat. Nothing. No hat. No hat. No Robert. Just. No. And then he puts a picture of Robert in the case. And there's no hat. <laughs> he puts a picture of the guy in the book, the guy who will not do anything without his hat. And the picture, he doesn't have a hat. He's not wearing a hat in the photo. You honestly cannot make this shit up. I mean, at least, for God's sakes, at least try to make your point valid by finding a photo of the guy in the hat. Oh. I'm so exasperated by this. All right. Just a little bit more, guys. Let's talk about the case of Bobby Pankin. This is a four-year-old boy who went missing. Quote, the first day of camping was uneventful. On Saturday, Mr. Pankin and his son, Ted, went fishing while Mrs. Pankin took their sons, Bobby four, Jimmy six, and Billy 10, on a hike behind their campsite to look at a small waterfall just off of an old logging road. 
The group reached the area of the falls and Mrs. Pankin told Bobby to sit on the ground on the old road and wait a few minutes while she and the brothers walked 10 feet to look at the falls. Mrs. Pankin knew that Bobby couldn't walk through the brush to see the falls because he was only wearing a swimsuit and no shoes and the ground was very rough. Mrs. Pankin and the boys walked 10 feet to look at the falls and in less than two minutes, see now it's less than two minutes, were back on the logging road. Bobby was gone. Okay, I have a lot of problems with this story. Number one, who the fuck leaves a four-year-old on the ground like a dog? Sit, stay, we'll be back. Seriously, what kind of parent? Number two, you knew you were going to see the falls. That's why you went on this hike, right? You knew you were going to the falls, yet you chose to only dress him in a swimsuit and didn't bother to put shoes on his feet. I mean, put some shoes on the kid. You're going for a hike. Number three, it's, it's 10 feet. He's four years old. You say, oh, he can't make it through the brush. How about you do what every other parent in the world would have done? Pick him up and carry him that 10 feet. You don't leave him on the road. But the real question that Plytus isn't asking here, beyond the logic of the parenting, is can we believe this woman's story? Right? We have the woman's story, but can we believe it? Let's think about it. She could be lying because she did something wrong. Possible. We don't know. She could be lying because she's ashamed about the shitty choices as a parent she just made. That's possible too. We don't know. She could be lying because it was 10 feet and two minutes. I'm sorry. She could be lying because it wasn't 10 feet and two minutes. It was actually longer and maybe further away. Or she could be thinking that she's telling the truth, but just be wrong about the time. She thinks it was two minutes. It wasn't. As humans, we don't perceive time accurately. We're not machines. I remember as a kid, my mom and I would be driving somewhere and she'd say, I need to run in the store real quick, just five minutes. And I would elect to wait in the car and it was never five minutes. It was 15 or 20, but she always thought it was five. That was her perception of the time. And Mrs. Pankin, she says she's only gone for two minutes. Is that, I mean, do we actually even leave that timeline? Could you walk 10 feet through brush, look at a waterfall and walk back 10 feet in two minutes or at, as it, as he says at another point, less than two minutes. I mean, that's a real, that's like walk over. Hey, look at the waterfall. Turn back around. You went on this big hike to glance at a waterfall. I'm going to guess that you were standing there for more than two minutes. I'm going to guess that's one thing that we can't trust in the story, the timeline. I said that thinking about this book exemplifies the problems that I see among paranormal and true crime researchers, bloggers, podcasters, sleuths, authors. And that problem, one of those problems is that they trust eyewitness testimony far too much. They assume that everyone is telling the truth, that every detail is Bible, that everyone is remembering things accurately. Nobody's forgetting anything. Nobody is ever remembering anything inaccurately. But 
actual law enforcement who deal with this stuff on a daily basis, daily basis will tell you that all of the forms of misevidence, I mean, of evidence, eyewitness testimony is the least reliable. Of all of them, eyewitness least reliably, consistently. And as an ex-cop, Politis, Politis should know that. In TV shows, fictional TV shows, cops and DAs, they always feel uneasy about these cases that are just based on circumstantial evidence. But circumstantial evidence is blood, fingerprints, DNA, video footage, boot prints, hair. It's physical evidence. In real life, investigators feel uneasy about eyewitnesses. Think about it. Have you ever seen a case prosecuted on eyewitness testimony alone? No circumstantial evidence? No, but you've seen it the other way. There's a reason for that. People don't always tell the truth, sometimes on purpose and sometimes just because their perception of the truth is inaccurate. Think about how many times people are in banks, they get robbed, and then they get descriptions of the bank robbers, and nobody's descriptions match each other. It's not because people are lying. He was blonde, and he didn't have a beard. Actually, he was a redhead with a beard. Actually, he was bald and a woman. <laughs> what color was the car? It was red. It was blue. It was actually gray. This happens all the time. You can't blindly trust eyewitness testimony. And it's not always because people are lying. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just because people don't remember. Our brains are not computers. They're not video recorders. They don't accurately record things. Our emotions and all of that stuff alter our perception, especially in our memory. All right. One more thing I want to say about this book. We're doing good. I thought we were going to be way over two hours. I want to talk about what I see as the biggest logical problem in this book. And it's that Pilates seems to have a problem telling the difference between correlation and causation. Just a really bad problem for a researcher and for an investigator. So let me put this plainly. Correlation means that two things have an observable, observable. How about I, I lose the ability to say that word. They have an observable connection, right? I have hair, you have hair. Correlation. Causation is assuming a cause and effect relationship, cause and effect relationship between two or more things. I have hair and you have hair. We both have good genes. Now, that might be true, that the reason we both have hair, I actually don't have hair, but the reason we both have hair is because we have good genes. But there's no evidence for it there. That's, that's a leap. It's an assumption, right? It's, it's not true because we both have hair. You understand what I mean? If we both have good genes, there has to be something else in our equation to make that true. The fact that I have hair and you have hair is not enough to prove that statement. There has to be other evidence. If you use correlation as your only evidence, then you can easily just say, I have hair and you have hair, therefore you stole my hair. Or you have hair and I have hair, therefore we're the same person. 
or you have hair and I have hair. Therefore, the hair created us and hair is God. The observable connection between things doesn't say anything about the cause and effect relationship. Because you got a job on Tuesday doesn't mean anything about Tuesdays necessarily. But people don't go around saying, you know what? Um, I believe coral correlation implies causation. Instead, they say the things that Politis says throughout this book, like on page 11, he says, I think it's an amazing coincidence if you believe in coincidences. Or on page 23, he says, as someone who doesn't believe in coincidences, yeah, coincidences is a code word for this causation correlation problem. But it's not impossible. It's, it's literally impossible not to believe in coincidence. Do you even know what would happen to you if you didn't believe in coincidence? Our days are full of little coincidences all over the place. You and your boss wore the same shirt. Coincidence. We're both at the store at the same time. Coincidence. Your car is blue. You park next to a car that's blue. Coincidence. You want pizza. Your partner wants pizza. Coincidence. Your brain would explode if you thought all those things meant something. He'd be frozen in an action. My hat is red. His hat is red. So that means I should go to Walmart with him. But she's listening to Taylor Swift and I'm listening to Taylor Swift. So then that means I should go to the park with her. What do I do? Walmart park, Walmart park, Walmart park. It's an endless loop. You're like a broken machine. If you don't believe in coincidence, you'd be like a broken machine. Sometimes you burp while somebody else farts and it doesn't mean that you should get married. Sometimes those random things are just mundane. Sometimes they're weird, but they don't always mean anything more than that. They can, but they don't mean it just because you observed it. When someone says, I don't believe in coincidence, what they mean is I don't have proof, but I want to believe this. And for a researcher to say that over and over in their book, it's a red flag. It's a big red flag. I'll say what I tell myself again. I want to believe. I just don't want to turn off my brain to do it. So that's the first 60-ish pages of Missing 411. I don't know what'll happen when I read the rest of the book. If it's more of the same of me pointing out logical flaws and nothing new to add to the conversation, I won't revisit it. But if I find something new to add to it, maybe turns it around, I don't know. I will come back with it. But other than that, that is the end of the episode. I just want to remind you guys once again, go check out College Dropout Radio. Become a patron, even if it's just for one month to check it out. Patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall. Let me know what you think of the tunes. I think there's some really good tunes in there, stuff you've heard of, bands you've heard of, songs you haven't heard of, probably bands you've never heard of, maybe even bands you've heard of but never heard. I don't know. It's a nice mix of all of those. And uh, thank you to the patrons who are already over there. I hope you guys are enjoying it. 
And to everybody else who's listening to this, thank you for listening. Um, I know I continue to praise my patrons, but you guys listening, I also appreciate you a lot. I put a lot of work into this episode. Uh, I hope it was worth it. <laughs> and if you guys want to leave me a message, you can go to the contact page on the website, mattersbutitdoesn't.com forward slash contact, where you see my social media links. You also see the little box where you can send me the message. You know, you're used to contact forms. And of course, the number for the answering machine, one 245 6098 Call and leave me a message. Tell me about some logical fallacies that drive you nuts. Tell me about a Bigfoot that you saw eating berries. Tell me about your grandmother. <laughs> Tell me about college dropout radio. Tell me whatever. Call me now. It's at mattersbuttedozen.com or where everything else is. And once again, a reminder, I still want to see photos of payphones. So if you are out there in the world with a cell phone in your hand and you see a payphone, take a picture, post it, and tag me at the real Chad Hall. I want to see them. All right. Kept you here long enough. I want to go watch some TV. So remember what I always say at the end of these, be kind, uh, be clear in your thinking. And never forget that I love you, babies. Bye-bye.